Today I'm speaking with Daniel Goleman and Richard Davidson. Daniel is known for his best-selling books on emotional intelligence. His book, Emotional Intelligence, I believe was the best-selling nonfiction book of the 90s. If it's not literally true, it is close. And Danny's interest in meditation goes way back to his years spent in India as a graduate student at Harvard. He's a trained psychologist who for many years reported on the brain and behavioral sciences for the New York Times. He's been a visiting faculty member at Harvard. He's received many journalistic awards, including two nominations for the Pulitzer Prize. And he received the Career Achievement Award for Journalism from the American Psychological Association. And uh, my experience with Danny goes way back. We have spent many, many months on retreats together. Back in the day, we've traveled to India and Nepal to study with various meditation teachers together. And Danny has, over the years, given me advice with respect to publishing. So it's great to be able to get him on the podcast. And uh, Richard, known as Richie, to those who know him, is a professor of psychology and psychiatry at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he's the director of the Weisman Laboratory for Brain Imaging and Behavior there. He's also the founder of the Center for Healthy Minds at the Weisman Center. Richie also received his PhD in psychology from Harvard and has been at Wisconsin since 1984. And he's been a very prolific experimental scientist. He has published more than 300 papers, as well as numerous chapters and reviews, and he has edited 14 books. And I think it's beyond dispute that Richie has done the most important neuroimaging research on meditation to date. He generally works with functional magnetic resonance imaging and EEG as well. All of those articles you've seen with the French monk Matthew Ricard with EEG electrodes on his head, that research was done in Richie's lab. And really, there's no one better to talk about the current state of the science for our understanding of mindfulness and meditation. And as luck would have it, Danny and Richie have just published a book together presenting all of the relevant science, and that book is Altered Traits, Science Reveals How Meditation Changes Your Mind, Brain, and Body. And we get into all of that in this conversation. We talk about the original stigma associated with studying meditation, the history of introspection in Eastern and Western culture, the more recent collaboration between Buddhists mainly and Western scientists, the difference between altered states of consciousness and altered traits, the importance of actually practicing meditation. We talk about an alternate conception of mental health, what it means to be identified with thought, and how non-optimal that is, the relationship between mindfulness meditation and so-called flow states, and many other topics here. This really is the, the conversation that will get you most grounded in the why and the what of meditation from a scientific point of view. So now, without further delay, I bring you Daniel Goleman and Richard Davidson. So I'm here with Daniel Goleman and Richard Davidson. Dan, Richie, thanks for coming on the podcast. Pleasure, Sam. Happy to be here. So just to clarify, this is not an undue sign of familiarity. You actually go by Dan and Richie uh, among friends, and uh, I certainly consider myself a friend, so you'll be referred to thusly. Let's talk about 
your history together and and my history with you briefly just to to orient people because you guys go way back i guess starting with you dan just say how you view your your intellectual history and you know briefly and how you came to this topic and then and then we'll talk about how you guys met so my intellectual history took a an unexpected detour when I was a graduate student at Harvard and I had a pre-doctoral traveling fellowship to India, I had met Ramdas, who uh, five years before had been fired from my own department at Harvard as Richard Alpert, gone to India and come back with the name Ramdas as a yogi and a teacher and a lecturer. I ran into him by accident and I was very impressed by what he was saying about his teacher in India named Neem Kroli Baba. So I went to India. Harvard was nice enough to uh, give me a free ride there. And uh, I went to see Neem Kroli Baba, who was unlike anyone I'd met before. He was uh, completely present, completely loving to everybody, it seemed, open to anyone, you know, high caste, low caste, anybody, uh, and didn't seem to want anything for himself. And I, I th- never met anyone like that. So I go back to Harvard and I say, you know, there's a positive side to human nature that we don't look at. I was studying clinical psychology, which is how to diagnose what's wrong with people. And my professors were basically uninterested. There was one graduate student there who was interested, and his name was Richie Davidson. And so Richie and I became friends, and both of us did our research on meditation. And we've circled back to that with our book, Altered Traits, after being under the radar for many years and then finding that the field of meditation research has just exploded. It's been flourishing. When we did our dissertations, there were three peer-reviewed articles we could cite. Uh, when we reviewed the literature some decades later, there are now more than 6,000 on the topic. Uh, and we use very rigorous standards to winnow them down to about 60. And that field has been flourishing largely because of the neuroimaging work that Richie has been doing in his lab at Wisconsin. So Richie, give us your your brief CV here and take us back to the 70s. Well, I was very fortunate to meet some people during my early days in graduate school whose demeanor and whose presence was infectious to me. These were the kind of people I wanted to be more like. I wanted to know what their secret sauce was, and I learned that they were all meditators. I met Dan my very first day of graduate school, uh, and uh, I decided that after my second year of graduate school, I needed to find out more about this tradition and to get a taste of it more experientially. So uh, I uh, went to Sri Lanka and to India and spent part of the time with Dan that summer. I spent about three months in Asia. That was the summer during which I participated in my first meditation retreat, and so got a a glimpse of what these practices were like, and came back with a conviction that this was something important for Western psychology and neuroscience to take more serious account of. But it was made very clear to me that if I wanted a successful career in science, Studying meditation was a terrible way to begin. Let's talk about why that was the case. You are coming right on the the heels of the psychedelic craze in the 60s that was largely 
kicked off by some of your elders at Harvard, Tim Leary and, and Richard Alpert, aka Ramdas, and they got fired. And most people's entrance into the the topic of meditation at that point, as as being of interest, had some connection to the altered states that people were encountering doing psychedelics. And, and this whole area was stigmatized to a significant degree in academia. Is the connection to psychedelics relevant there, or was it just stigmatized on its own? Well, I think it is relevant. Uh, Richie, I, you probably add to this, but basically the department people that who are professors then were pretty much the people who had been traumatized by all the publicity, the adverse publicity around Leary and Alpert and their firing. And I think that anything that had to do with consciousness in any way was rather anathema to me. I think it was, to them, rather, it was scary. Uh, and so uh, I think they reacted to us and our interest in meditation from that framework. Richie, what would you say? Uh, I would agree that that played a role. But I also think there are other factors at play as well. Uh, remember, this was at the end of the behavioral era. Behaviorism was still a force in uh, in the academy within psychology, and in fact, uh, you know, my another encounter that I had during my first year in graduate school was running into Skinner in the elevator in William James Hall, and there's a very extraordinary encounter that I had with him because this was actually my first couple of weeks at Harvard, and I didn't know exactly where I was going, and I pushed a button on the elevator, and then I. I mumbled to myself, whoops, I changed my mind, and I hit another button, realizing that I needed to go to another floor, and Skinner was standing next to me in the elevator, and he put his arm on my shoulder, and he said, son, you did not change your mind, you changed your behavior. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. The sixth floor of our building had his pigeons, along with Dick Hernstein. (laughs) That was another element that we had to contend with. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because the the influence of behaviorism, I think it's to some degree still felt, although very few people would answer to the name of behaviorism now, but it's one of those intellectual influences that in retrospect seems almost impossible. The idea that that people thought, and most of the people who made it their business to study something about the human mind and human nature thought that all of this could be captured in terms of the outputs and inputs to the system and that the brain and mind in between could be treated like this black box that really was doing nothing of interest. That was the view then. But, uh, you know, on another floor in that same building was a subversive guy, Jerome Bruner, who was starting to found what's now cognitive science. And as cognitive science and then neuroscience developed better methodologies, Uh, Really, they swept behaviorism aside. Behaviorism was only interested, as you point out, in in what you could observe. But cognitive science was a way of cleverly tracking what's going on within the mind. Uh, And now, of course, cognitive science is, is quite ascendant. Behaviorism is pretty irrelevant. I think there's another piece here, which is that introspection was always more or less stillborn in the Western tradition. I mean, there's Briefly in your book, you talk about the, the Western precursors to meditation. You, you, you point out that the Greeks had a piece of this. Aristotle had, had a, a concept of human flourishing or eudaimonia, which many Greek philosophers thought about. And, and presumably there was some 
methodology there among the Stoics and, and the skeptics that was analogous to what we're calling meditation. But it really died out in Western philosophy, this, this idea that you could train the mind to be different than it is, and that the point of philosophy would be a, a life well-lived or, or a way of maximizing human well-being. And even in, then in psychology, you had people like William James try their hand at introspection, but it did peter out into some kind of cul-de-sac by virtue of just a, a lack of depth of experience and and a methodology to take it and forward. I think yeah, there was a... Go ahead, Richie. No, I, I was going to say, I think to some extent, it's still that way today, uh, largely because there is still the presumption that the instrument of our mind that we use to interrogate uh, the nature of our mind uh, is relatively constant across people. And the notion that we can train our mind to, uh, in some sense, polish the lens and have a more accurate observing apparatus is still something quite foreign to most people in the academy. And so, you know, it's always been interesting to reflect on uh, the project of looking at correlations between what's going on in the brain and what people report in their experience. Uh, and uh, uh, those correlations historically, while when you arrange the experimental situation in the right way, you can find positive correlations, they've never been particularly strong or overwhelming. And there's never really been the questioning of uh, the veridicality of the reports themselves and asking whether an individual who has trained his or her mind to clean lens, so to speak, might actually have better introspective access, uh, more accurate introspective access, and therefore the correlation between the reports of experience and what's going on in the brain potentially might be higher. And of course, this is the project of neurophenomenology that Francisco Varela, the, the biologist who co-founded the Mind and Life Institute, was really pushing. But in his life, which ended prematurely because he died of liver cancer, he really never saw the fruition of that dream. And we still haven't. But uh, I think that the, um, the framework is now in place to actually do this in a systematic way. I'm glad you mentioned Francisco. I, I want to just come back and, and speak about him a little bit more here. But just to not give people the wrong picture here, this notion of mental training is actually esoteric even in the East, even among Buddhists. I mean, most, most Buddhists don't meditate, and I've even met Buddhist monks who don't meditate. I, I, I've even met Western Buddhist monks, Westerners who have gone to Thailand and ordained and become monks who themselves didn't meditate. So me meditation is esoteric as a practice, even among Buddhists. And, and, and that's just something that is especially strange in that context to me. But it's, it's not like everyone east of the Bosporus is spending half their day in meditation. Well, Sam, if I could say, uh, every, I think every major spiritual tradition, certainly in Eurasia, has had an esoteric center, which is training the mind. Now, in modern day, we talk about neuroplasticity. But, you know, in the second century, there were Christian monks 
in the desert of Egypt who were meditating, essentially, and they're doing the same thing a yogi uh, in India might be doing. And I think you're right that, you know, being a full-time meditator, uh, as occurs in some Asian cultures, but means you have to be a monk or a nun or a yogi. And even among <laughs> monks and nuns, not everybody will do that. It's a, it takes a particular kind of dedication. And it's a narrow slice. Those are the people who go the deepest. Then there are the meditative traditions as they've been brought from Asia to the West. And a lot's been left behind, but it's accessible to a larger swath of people. And then there's the remove beyond that, where you've got, you know, make mindfulness. You have mindfulness of every kind in schools and businesses and so on. And, and that's a pretty thin experience, but it goes to scale. So I think that generally there's a trade-off between doing a little bit and lots of people doing it, or doing it very intensely and very deeply. And every, you know, Sufis do a kind of meditation. Certainly there are Hindu meditations among yogis. There are, uh, the Christian tradition of meditation, by the way, was wiped out by the church as heresy. It's, it's too bad because it ended that tradition in the West. But I think that what we were able to capture um, in looking at the meditative traditions that have had research done on them, it's interesting. It, it was mostly Buddhist. It's mindfulness, it's Zen and Vipassana, which is a, another Buddhist method. And then Dzogchen or Mahamudra, uh, which is done by Tibetan yogis. And that's the bulk of the research so far. It's not an accident that you and, and Western science in general has focused the collaboration between third-person scientific methods and first-person contemplative methods along Buddhist lines, because there, there's so much in Buddhism that is, is just perfectly designed for export into a, a secular context. It's not to say that Buddhism doesn't have its the literature on magic and, and iconography and rituals that seems as religious as anything else, but there's a, a central strand there that is empirical in a way that doesn't presuppose any religiosity or any doctrines that need to be accepted on faith. And that's, it's much harder to say that of these other contemplative traditions. And, and, and on your point about the stamping out Christian esotericism as a heresy, that's, I mean, the, the problem has always been that the moment Christians become too contemplative, people like Meister Eckhart, they begin to sound like Buddhists. It's not an accident that the, the fires of the Inquisition had, had more or less reached Eckhart's door. It's more, more sinister than that. They, they're saying that, hey, I can have an unmediated relationship with something greater than myself. I don't need the church. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the church didn't like hearing that for a minute. So one of you or, or both of you briefly describe the, the recent history, I, mean, I guess going back to, to Francisco's time, of collaboration between Western scientists and Buddhism. Let me give some background, then Richie can fill in that, the answer to that. The background has to do with the upsurge in meditation research itself. And I think a lot of that has to do with the efforts of the Mind and Life Institute. Richie and I are now stepping down as board members. It was originally founded by the Dalai Lama, Francisco Varela, the scientist and a businessman, Adam Engel. And the idea was to create dialogues with the Dalai Lama uh, about different sciences, and they're quite in-depth, you know, and they cover the quantum physics and astrophysics, you know, all, all kinds of things, including neuroscience. And that said, 
the Institute also very early started having summer research institutes. Richie actually was one of the most active people in founding, where graduate students and postdocs in cognitive and neuroscience came together who were interested in meditation, but lonely in their own institutions. Nobody else cared. But here they found a network, a supportive family, if you will, of fellow scientists. And that's encouraged a lot of the research. Many of the studies that we cite in our book actually were done by graduates at Institute. And at the same time, um, in parallel, there was the impetus given by the Dalai Lama at a Mind and Life meeting where he turns to Richie and he says, this is around 2000, year 2000, our, our tradition has many methods for managing disturbing, upsetting emotions. Take them out of the religious context, study them rigorously in the lab, and if they're a benefit, spread them widely. Mm -hmm. Now you're spreading them widely with this book, which we will get into in a minute, but I, I guess just to describe my point of contact with the, the history you just sketched, I knew you already, Dan, but I, I met up with you guys in Dharamsala for one of your Mind and Life meetings, and that's where I met Francisco for the first time. And Francisco was the one who who strongly recommended that I go to Nepal at that point and study Dzogchen. I had had, had years as a Vipassana meditator, and I had studied with you know various Advaita teachers in India, but I hadn't yet connected with a, a Dzogchen master, and so Francisco recommended that I go to Nepal to study with Tukurgan. And he was instrumental in that happening. And also, he wrote me a letter of recommendation to graduate school for, for neuroscience. And so that was, as you know, he was a, a neuroscientist. So he straddled both these worlds before I really knew these, these worlds were being straddled by anyone. And then I think I went to your first summer research institute, Richie, and also was, I, I at least collaborated with you in setting up that first Vipassana retreat at IMS for, for scientists, where we put up 100 scientists in, in silence around, I don't know, it's like 2006 or, or somewhere around there. Let's get into the book, because this book is really the, the most comprehensive and up-to-the-minute presentation of the scientific research on meditation in general, and, and specifically mindfulness, which, as you just pointed out, Dan, is everywhere, and people are making extravagant claims for its benefits, some of which are grounded in the science and some of which aren't, or at least aren't yet. Richie, give us this basic distinction that you make early in the book, which carries throughout it, between altered states and altered traits. Well, altered states refer to the experiences that we have sitting on the cushion or sitting on a chair when we're meditating. And the importance of meditation lies not really in the transitory experiences that we have when we're meditating, but it is in the impact of these practices in every nook and cranny of our everyday life. And this is what we refer to as altered traits. Altered traits are enduring changes that are consequences of our practice that uh, impact every aspect of our lives uh, and can be discerned in specific kinds of measures that are taken when we are not explicitly meditating. And so while much of the early work, including the early work from my own lab, was focused on the changes during the meditation period itself, what really counts in terms of the impact of these practices are the enduring changes. And so 
one of the central questions that we ask in the book is how do the more fleeting experiences that we have when we're practicing ultimately become more enduring changes that persist? And uh, one of the key answers to that is practice. Practice really makes a difference. And there is no substitute for practice. This is a question that we're, we get so often, particularly in America. Uh, how can we shorten the process? Are there strategies or technological aids that we can use to, to shorten the time? But I don't think uh, this is fundamentally different than learning any other kind of skill. It takes time to become a chess master. It takes time to learn to play the violin. It takes time to learn to be a collegiate athlete. In the same way, uh, practice is important here. You can sort of flip it and acknowledge that at every moment in your life, you are practicing something. You're, you're using your attention in a certain way. And for the most part, if you're, if you're like most people, you're using it in ways that lead to predictable source of dissatisfaction. I mean, you're, you're practicing a kind of meditation on all the things you want, all the things that make you anxious, and a kind of a, a perpetual distraction for which a method like mindfulness is put forward as an antidote. But as your mind is, your life becomes. And so you're, you're ingraining various tendencies and habits and neurophysiological states moment by moment, every moment of your life. One of the things I frequently say is that neuroplasticity occurs wittingly or unwittingly. Most of the time it's occurring unwittingly. Most of the time we're being shaped by forces around us about which we have little insight and little control. And the invitation in this work is that we can actually more intentionally take responsibility for our own minds and brains by cultivating healthier habits of mind. Your brain is constantly changing in response to experience. I mean, if, if the three of us remember having had this conversation, that will be by virtue of having laid down a physical memory trace in our brains. Genes get transcribed, receptors get made. This is a change in the physical structure of the brain to encode any memory. So, so neuroplasticity is just a background fact of our brains all the time. And what's happening with meditation or any kind of practice of anything, you know, learning to play golf, learning to play the piano, you are deciding to change your brain in a, in a way that, you know, in this case, takes Absolutely. attention and effort. There's another point here, Sam, and I think it's the social context and technological context in which this is now happening because we're living in an age that's never been more distracted and never had more luscious, seductive distractions available day or night on our tech devices. I, I just was witnessing or hearing the, one of the guys who was on the team that in, developed the iPod and the iPhone at Apple, the very first one. He said, we're all you know, single 20-somethings, we had no life, and we tried to make it as seductive as we could. Now I'm a parent, and I really regret that. And I, I think any parent knows what he's talking about. You don't want your kids to spend all their time pulled in to staring at a video screen for hours and hours. You want them to be, you know, relating, looking around, experiencing the world. So things are changing in 
a direction I think people may feel a little helpless about, but meditation or cultivating the ability to concentrate and ignore distractions, I think has a special cachet and virtue now that wasn't true in the past, if only as an antidote to a, a social trend. There was a research at Harvard that, sh you know, that famous paper in science where they monitored how distracted people are during the day. And the title was, A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. Because the more your mind wanders in distraction, the more depressed you get. There really is a different conception of mental health here that we are tacitly endorsing, because the assumption has been for most people, and certainly for most of science, that certain default facts about our mind are normal, and the idea of changing them just simply wouldn't occur to a person. Most people don't even know that their minds are continuously lost in thought, and it's not even considered. As, it's just, it really is just the white noise of, of our worldview. And then when you enter a, a contemplative tradition, and in particular, a discussion of mental training in the Buddhist tradition, you see, uh, really, as, as almost your first claim, that this is absolutely pathological to have your attention continually buffeted by the winds of discursive thought, and you're helplessly carried away by every single thought that enters consciousness. And not only are you carried away by the emotions that it invokes, you know, desire and fear and boredom and all the rest, you are identified with it such that it seems to be you. I mean, your, your sense of self is bound up in the flow of thought in a way that most people have never, it's never occurred to them to question. And there, there's very little in, has been you know, heretofore, very little in Western science that has inspired questioning it. And I want to I talk about you know, how you both view the, the self, but do you want to say anything about what it means to have a, a healthy human mind in light of uh, this meditation research? Rishi's done a lot of work on that recently. There is a growing body of scientific research which is suggesting that attentional distraction, mind wandering, as well as reification of the self. Rishi, what do you what do you mean reification of self? Can you translate that? Yeah. Believing the thoughts that we have about ourselves as a true depiction of reality, considering them to be veridical. That you see in depressed people, for example. One of the characteristics of depression is that negative self-thoughts are actually taken to be a veridical description of who the individual is. What if it's a positive thought? Well, for a positive thought, I think that there's less of an obvious deleterious consequence, but I think uh, there's another more subtle kind of suffering that may be associated with that as well, which certainly the Buddhist tradition speaks to. And uh, this whole idea we call experiential fusion, where you uh, uh, have the experience of being completely fused with the thought rather than having a quality of meta-awareness, which is knowing that there is actually a thought occurring and being able to see it as a thought. And that's something that, of course, we know can be taught through the kinds of contemplative practices that we're considering. And one of the most important findings, really, is the finding 
that meta-awareness can be strengthened. The, and meta-awareness is simply knowing that you're knowing, recognizing that a thought is a thought rather than being swept up in its content. One of the main principles of cognitive therapy is that you don't have to believe your thoughts. That's a very revolutionary idea for most of us. We should probably define mindfulness at this point. I, you know, Most of the listeners to this podcast will be familiar with this concept because I've spoken about it before and I've had our mutual friend Joseph Goldstein on twice. And so this is, this is not the first time I've hit this. But for, for those who are new to the topic, and this, and this really is the center of the bullseye as far as the, the, the meditation instruction that has been mostly studied by Richie and, and others at this point, how would you define mindfulness? I'll take a crack. I think mindfulness, uh, as it's taught in the classic traditions, encourages us to take a equanimous position amidst the coming and going of our own feelings and thoughts and to see them as feelings and thoughts rather than that's me and to just note them without judgment or without reactivity and let them come and let them go. That's a very radical stance internally. And so is, is there any distinction between what you're calling meta-awareness, Richie, and mindfulness, as you just used it? Well, I think that, uh, you know, in the classical traditions, uh, mindfulness often has a more, has some additional components in addition to the ones Dan described. It includes remembering to bring a certain view to each and every encounter. And what is it that we mean by the, a view? Well, in part, it means recognizing that every human being shares the same wish to be happy and to be free of suffering, and also a view that has an altruistic intent, the disposition to help relieve the suffering of others whenever it's encountered, and remembering to bring that conviction, if you will, that stance to every encounter is also part of mindfulness. Now, it's not typically how it's defined by psychologists or neuroscientists, but in the contemplative traditions, it certainly in part has that flavor. When we talk about meta-awareness, I think meta-awareness is a psychological feature that is strengthened by mindfulness training. There are very specific ways that psychologists have devised to measure meta-awareness objectively. And uh, all of them, in one way or another, have to do with recognizing the nature of what is occurring in our mind, recognizing that we are knowing, recognizing that we uh, are engaged in certain kinds of behavior. We often experience things and actually behave and not have that sense of recognition. We do it in the absence of meta-awareness. And one metaphor which might be helpful for listeners to better appreciate this is one that we sometimes use. Most people have had this experience of being in a movie theater, watching a very engrossing movie, and completely losing awareness that you're in the theater, that you're sitting in a chair, you're just so wrapped up in the plot. That is what we would call experiential fusion, where there's no meta-awareness. But we can be equally attentive to the movie and sitting in the theater and in the background recognize that we're sitting in a theater. And that would be akin to having meta-awareness, which is that background recognition 
And in the case of thoughts, it's recognizing that these are thoughts. This is not who we are, but rather these are thoughts. I like that analogy for many reasons, although it's potentially misleading for some people because what you just described about movie watching, this experiential fusion, is what is so good about movies. We want to disappear into the movie because it's much less fun to be constantly reminded that you're sitting in a theater with a bunch of people and and, uh, you're looking at light on a wall. But what we should remember is that the movie of our lives, with which we are fused in every moment that we're not aware of being lost in thought, is very often a bad movie. It's a depressing movie. It's a scary movie. It's a movie that is just filled with feelings of, of sadness or, or at least dissatisfaction much of the time. And what you're describing is the ability to recognize thoughts as thoughts and emotions as transitory appearances in the flow of consciousness. And those moments of recognition provide real relief from the dissatisfaction and mediocrity and, and even even extreme physical pain that may be arising in consciousness in each moment. Right. right. But, but to go back to a point that Dan made, even if the, the, the movie was a good movie, so to speak, even if there are positive thoughts, uh, the same would, in, would, would be true. And so, uh, you know, we're, I, I often get the question whether meditation is like flow. And, you know, Csikszentmihalyi, the psychologist who studied flow, studied rock climbers, for example, who have this extremely ecstatic state when they're rock climbing and are totally engrossed in what they're doing. But what, what that is a case, again, of experiential fusion. There is no meta-awareness. Uh, rock climbers, uh, you know, or else all rock climbers would be enlightened people. Not necessarily. Yeah, well, that's an important distinction because this connection with flow is often made, and it's often meditation as an idea is often sold by kind of advertising this possible connection. And I've done it myself in, in emphasizing that the moments in life that we all love are the moments in life where we are, where attention is fully captured by the present moment, where we're lost in our work or we're lost in the pleasure of some athletic experience. People you know, very frequently reference things like athletics and sex and, and, and peak experiences as moments where there's no distance between attention and its object. You're not, you're not wondering what you're going to have for lunch you're, because you're, you're fully engrossed in what you're doing. I mean, it really is the concentration component of meditation that is being echoed there. And some meditation types, TM, a mantra, what's called the jhana practices in Vipassana or insight meditation are concentrative methods that get you into a blissful state in much the same way because it's using a, your attention fully, concentrating 100%, uh, and then there, you feel wonderful when you do it. But there's a different path which has to do with pulling back into meta-awareness. And that ha- I think that shifts from uh, you know, joy, bliss to equanimity, which is a different kind of contentment. It's a different way of feeling good. Well, one other, one other consideration here is that when you are no longer in that concentrated state, the monkey mind rears its ugly head again. 
uh, it's back to where it was. Uh, it yeah. is an altered state and not an altered trait. Well, this is true. And in our original formulation, way back when we were at Harvard together, Richie, remember we said, the problem with altered states is that after you come down, you're the same schmuck you were before you went up. And that's, that got us to think about altered traits. What's really lasting? What are the real benefits? Yeah, actually, there's a very, very poignant story about that from Richie's first time sitting with Goenka in India that you tell in the book where he had this peak experience of having quite a wonderful alteration in his state. And then, well, Richie, you can tell, you can tell the story. You had, this is, your, I believe, your first 10-day retreat with Goenka that, that got you something like uh, meditative success, and then you, you came home to confront your family. Right. And so uh, it, you, you quickly see the impact dissipate as the situation changes. Uh, and in that case, you know, uh, we were, my wife, she wasn't my wife then, but uh, Susan and I came back to the U.S. and we looked completely emaciated and where we were wearing clothes that we had had made in India. We looked like Rex and our family greeted us uh, in not so warm ways, and it just uh, very effectively crashed the whole experience very quickly. But the experience was very blissful uh, when you're sitting on the cushion originally, wasn't it? Of course, yeah. So, it, so these experiences have a half-life. That was the problem. So what is being sought, if we can use such a goal-directed framing, in mindfulness practice? is an ability to recognize whatever is arising in experience clearly without grasping at the pleasant and pushing the unpleasant away and continually falling back into this, this witnessing position where we're actually just the peaceful context of consciousness in which everything is arising and changing and flowing. I mean, it's a different kind of flow there, which includes a clear awareness of being aware rather than being fused or identified with anything that's arising. Richie, perhaps at this point you can talk about what are the strongest scientific findings in this area. What is mindfulness good for as we understand it now scientifically? Well, I would say that one of the most important findings is uh, on this issue of meta-awareness using objective measures of meta-awareness. And the way psychologists uh, measure meta-awareness often is in the context of the recognition of mistakes. So if an individual is engaged in a difficult cognitive task during which mistakes are somewhat likely to occur because it is difficult, sometimes we are aware of those mistakes and other times we are not. And clearly from simply an adaptive perspective, it would be advantageous to be aware of a mistake when it occurs, because that affords the opportunity to correct the mistake. If a mistake occurs in the absence of any awareness, it, in certain contexts, can be potentially very problematic. And so meta-awareness is said to occur when we recognize those mistakes. And on measures of this sort, mindfulness training that's relatively modest in dose, and here we're talking about four to six weeks of daily practice, 
is sufficient to produce a change on these objective measures of meta-awareness, which is, I think, an important finding. Is attentional blink relevant here? Yeah, attentional blink is relevant too. It's, um, you know, that's a, that is an attribute of attention that we think is associated with the ability to notice small things in the environment and the ability to process information in a way which maintains some modicum of equanimity. Uh, The reason why an attentional blink occurs, and I should say what an attentional blink is, if you are asked to monitor the environment for certain kinds of cues, and let's say that you are a radar operator uh, uh, or an air traffic controller, and you have to monitor for certain events on a radar screen, and one event occurs that's a target event that you have to monitor, say it's a particular plane of a particular type, and very soon after, another event occurs that you are also supposed to monitor. What happens is that you, your attention is grabbed by that first event, and it's as, it's as if you get this little bit of excitement, you know, I found what I'm supposed to be looking for, and in that momentary excitement, you miss the second occurrence of that same class of events. And so if you're able to monitor the environment with more equanimity, you don't show, in this case, what's really an overinvestment of attentional resources in the first occurrence. And so you can, you can notice both the first and the second occurrence. And the attentional blink occurs when we just get overinvested in that first uh, occurrence and we don't notice the second one. And when you think about your daily life, there's so much that likely happens under the hood, so to speak, that we're unaware of because of the attentional blink. And for a long time, psychologists and neuroscientists thought that this was an obligatory refractory period of the nervous system, that this is just something that the brain does. And uh, we now know that mindfulness meditation can quite dramatically impact the attentional blink so that we can actually train our minds in a way that we notice that second occurrence much more accurately than an untrained mind would be. This seems like it would have social implications too, because when you're having a face-to-face interaction with somebody, there's so much information there. It seems to me that attentional blink would be constantly blinding us to specific events. It's perfect. It's really important because when we're you know in a face-to-face interaction, it's those incoming signals that tell us how what we're doing or saying is being received, or what that other person is feeling. They're fleeting emotions moment to moment, and we can might miss some crucial cues. Yeah, this issue is super important, and. Uh... If you observe two individuals interacting on video uh, and you slow down the video, it's quite remarkable what the density of facial behavior is in in a common interpersonal interaction. I've seen this on many occasions in research contexts, but you can just take an ordinary video of two people talking to one another, slow it down. And then you can see all the things that you're typically missing, uh, which is an enormous amount. So let's talk about 
the few categories of human suffering that I guess we can talk about it and and just you can tell me the state of the literature on the utility of, of mindfulness in particular as a, as a remedy. What do we know about depression and mindfulness at this point? Well, uh, there it's not mindfulness alone, but rather mindfulness in tandem with typically cognitive therapy, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which uh, meta-analyses seem to suggest can be as effective for, I think, mild and ordinary depression, not bipolar, as are medications. Also for anxiety disorders, uh, it seems to have the same amount of efficacy. Not so far for other psychiatric disorders. You know, I think that uh, most of the work with depression has, in fact, been focused on mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And where it's particularly effective is in reducing the likelihood of depressive relapse. That's where the best data are. So if you take an individual who uh, has had a history of depression, and one of the things we know about depression is that it's a recurring illness, teaching a person mindfulness-based cognitive therapy when they are admitted has a dramatic impact on the likelihood of relapse. And in fact, it's the one case where a mindfulness-based intervention is actually more effective than medication. So this is in preventing the, or reducing the, reducing the likelihood of relapse. Yes. But this is in one particular kind of depression. It's important to note, I believe it's for severe depression, but not bipolar disorder. Definitely not bipolar. Yeah. So, and what about pain perception and the problem of, of chronic pain, which obviously links quite unhelpfully with the, the problem of, of opioid abuse that is so in the news now? Well, I think we, we need to make a, a, an important distinction between pain and suffering. And um, the uh, neuroscience literature has helped us to understand the different parts of neural circuitry involved in pain processing that are related to pain more explicitly itself versus the suffering that uh, often occurs as a consequence of the initial pain. And uh, with regard to the impact of meditation, the data show that the circuitry involved in the more emotional components of pain, the suffering component, can be modulated much more strongly than the sensory features of the pain itself. And so here is where I think mindfulness and related practices can make an important difference. So this distinction between pain and suffering, let's say a little bit about that, because that's, that's highly counterintuitive to people. What are your findings there, or what are the findings of, of, of meditators in general there? Well, there, there are two kinds of findings. One is that during the anticipation of pain, we see the activation of parts of the neural circuitry associated with pain. We can see in the laboratory that when a person is told that they're going to be receiving a painful stimulus in the future, the circuitry, some of the circuitry involved in pain processing is activated in response to the innocuous cue that simply informs them that a painful stimulus will be occurring. In, in situations of chronic pain, we often encounter something quite similar, where a person is anticipating, for example, that when they start walking, they're going to start feeling pain. And that 
activates aspects of the pain matrix itself, even though they might not have begun to walk, the actual triggers might not have been activated. The parts of the pain matrix that are activated during those anticipatory periods are parts that are associated with with suffering, more the emotional components of pain rather than the sensory components of pain. And beyond pain, what do we know about the efficacy of, of meditation for social stress? For social stress, there's a little bit of evidence to suggest that it can be, that mindfulness-based stress reduction can be helpful in reducing some of the symptoms of social stress. We know that in laboratory models of social stress, where we can activate social stress in an actual social encounter and monitor it by looking at elevations of the stress hormone cortisol, that experienced mindfulness practitioners show less of a cortisol activation. And so there's evidence to suggest that mindfulness practices can be helpful here. Richie, you you might just describe what what that, is it the trier or trier social stress test? Because it's a a diabolical invention. How How do you provoke social stress in the lab? So the diabolical invention was actually uh, comes from uh, Trier, Germany. And the task is simply to have a person do a simulated job interview, a research participant, in front of a live audience, typically three stern-looking people who are instructed to have a rather stern face and not make any additional facial expressions they take notes during the talk, and the person has to sell themselves and uh, indicate in an actual live talk why they are optimally suited for a particular job. And they're given a very short time to prepare, and then they have to give this public speech. And in roughly uh, 75 to 80% of participants who are exposed to this, uh, they show a measurable elevation of the stress hormone cortisol that can be easily measured from saliva samples that are taken every 10 minutes before, uh, during, and after this talk. Isn't there an added piece? Yes. So the second piece is mental arithmetic, where a person is given a number like 4,736 and is asked to serially, serially subtract 13s. And if they make a mistake, they have to start from the beginning. And don't you do it as quickly as you can? Yes, as quickly as you can. Also in front of an audience, right? Also in front of the same audience. So that's a, a really effective way of jacking up what we in the trade refer to as the HPA axis, which stands for the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And it is the biological system uh, which is elevated during the flight or fight response And we know that it's controlled by specific circuitry in the brain that includes the amygdala, a key node in this circuitry. And so we and other scientists have found that mindfulness meditation can reduce activation in the amygdala, and it can also decrease the output of the HPA axis in the form of cortisol. But I should say that it it takes a modest amount of training. This is not effects that you see after just eight weeks. 
This requires a little bit more training to see these effects. And these are trade effects because these effects are observed outside of the meditation state itself. And so they're, they're quite interesting and we think very important, but they arise after a few thousand hours of practice. They don't arise instantaneously. Well, I want to talk about that circuitry that's inhibitory with respect to the amygdala and, and elsewhere in the brain, actually. But uh, I, I know, Dan, you wanted to mention mindfulness-based stress reduction and, and John Kabat-Zinn's contribution there. So tell people what MBSR is. Mindfulness for pain uh, was actually the point of developing mindfulness-based stress reduction, which was put together by our mutual friend John Kabat-Zinn at the University of Massachusetts. He told physicians there who had patients who were in chronic pain, you know, send them to me and I'm going to teach them a form of mindfulness. It's an eight-week program, you know, half hour a day, hour a day. And it turned out that it took a, that it inhibited that emotional component of pain. It allowed people to experience just the raw sensation of the physiology, the sensations of the actual you know, pressure or heat or whatever it was. And they had a much better quality of life as a result, even though the pain itself didn't end. And it has implications for the opioid crisis. Yeah. Pain obviously is the most obvious source of human suffering and it's unavoidable. I mean, you just, you wait around long enough, even just make yourself as comfortable as possible in a desk chair and decide not to move. And you don't have to wait long before really surprising levels of pain show up. So um, anything that we can do to mitigate the suffering associated with strong physical sensation is of great interest. Coming back to what is dialing down the, the stress response here, cortisol and, and otherwise, Richie, I, I'm not mistaken here, it's, it is, at least in the, in the training phase for most mindfulness meditators, we're talking about the prefrontal cortex exerting inhibitory control on the amygdala for the stress response and in other areas of the brain, which I don't think we've mentioned yet, but, but are generally called the default mode network for representations of the self and the sort of stickiness of the appropriation of thought and emotion that seems to constitute most people's feeling of, of self. Yeah, uh, the, exactly. So the data show that the connections between the, particularly the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex uh, and the amygdala, as well as the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and features of the default mode that we know are associated with the self-narrative are strengthened in mindfulness meditation practices. One of the important qualifications, though, that uh, I want to just flag for the listeners is not to come away from this conversation with the view that the amygdala is all bad. What we're talking about here is a, the context modulation of the amygdala in specific contexts. So being able to modulate the activation of the amygdala in response to pain or in response to a stressful challenge like making a public speech can be very helpful and adaptive. But there are other times when we may actually want to have the amygdala activated. And so this is a, a kind of buried story that often doesn't get told, but the amygdala is, uh, uh, we see accentuated activation of the amygdala 
during certain kinds of compassion meditation practices in response to stimuli that reflect or depict human suffering. And in that sense, uh, compassion may accentuate the response to suffering as an initial step in the cascade, which ultimately leads to the motivation to help. And so this is just a a little tidbit to insert to uh, uh, hopefully um, counteract the the simple-minded view that the amygdala is all bad. Yeah, there's been this popularization of the research on the amygdala. The amygdala is, I think, the one area of the brain that most people who don't study the brain can can name and it's not an accident because it's it has been described as the the fear center of the brain for so long but it it's more the emotional salient exactly. center of the brain for the whole range of emotions positive and negative so this picture of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex exerting inhibitory control over other regions the amygdala in the case of stress and and negative affect here. But as you point out, we're talking about mindfulness there, but with something like compassion, you can get an upregulation of of an amygdala response. Or it's inhibitory control over the default mode with respect to representations of self. That is, if I understood correctly from your book, that's more of a picture of the training phase of meditation. But when you're talking about the actual change in in traits, we're talking about something different, right? Especially with respect to the default mode. Absolutely. So one of the uh, important insights is that with very long-term training, the necessity of the prefrontal inhibitory pathway becomes less important once these habits, if you will, are firmly established. The prefrontal cortex is particularly important in the early stages of training, but once these qualities become more spontaneous, if you will, they require the prefrontal cortex less. And with regard to the default mode, there's likely a change in the, in the nature of the default mode itself. So um, initially, it's, uh, in the early stages of training, it's the prefrontal cortex inhibiting the default mode, but after some period of time, the default mode itself begins to change. And uh, precisely when that occurs and how that occurs, still open to uh, debate and requires additional research. But the fact that it occurs, I think, is pretty clear. And there's another question here I have, which is, and this is something you raise in your book in a way that might might strike many people surprising, and we followed this line in this conversation a little bit, which is potentially misleading. It's not entirely clear that meditation traditionally has been thought of as a straightforward antidote to what we would consider in the West to be psychopathology or, or you know, ordinary health problems with respect to the mind. And there's something a little, when, when, we, when we think of meditation as a cure for stress or anxiety or depression or a heightened pain response. In certain cases, we might be asking meditation to do something that it doesn't do very well. And in others, we're underselling its actual revolutionary potential for changing 
a person's worldview, a change in a person's sense of just what it is to be a human being in the world. Do either of you want to follow that line? I would love to. Sam, I think what you're getting at is very important, which is that the way the West is using meditation for the most part says more about the value hierarchy of the West, what we're interested in. We looked at all those studies. Very few have to do with deconstructing the self. The point of the classical meditation traditions has always been deconstructing the self, not feeling better, not being more productive, not getting overstressed. Those are all uh, attributes that we value in the West, but we're not part of the original tradition nor the point. They're byproducts of a, a different project, which has to do with less focus on me and more availability to the present and to you. I think that this is a very important issue. And, uh, you know, to put it in another way, uh, meditation wasn't originally developed to cure illness. It was developed to uh, cultivate awakening. And they're really different projects. And uh, uh, with respect to physical illness, I would say that the data there really are not very strong, um, honestly, and certainly do not show that meditation is better than any other method for any disease. Uh, I don't think there's a, a shred of evidence to suggest that. And with respect to psychiatric illness, as we talked about earlier, there's some evidence for depression, but for the most part, except for you know, this limited case of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy with depressive relapse, the evidence suggests again that mindfulness-based interventions are no better than any other empirically well-validated treatment. So while someone may prefer a mindfulness-based approach, it's not necessarily going to be any better. And, and this is a sobering reminder uh, that these practices were not originally designed for treating psychopathology or treating physical illness. There's another point we should make, which is that there are many kinds of meditation. Yeah. Mindfulness is the term many people have heard. A lot of people actually think mindfulness means meditation rather than it being an aspect or one variety of many kinds. But on this point, and now to cast uh, yet another sop in the direction of people who want meditation to cure their physical ills, What's the status of the data, Richie, on meditation and brain aging? Well, uh, that's a great question. And there's a, a few really interesting uh, recent papers suggesting that meditation may have a beneficial effect on brain aging. And I think that the data look pretty promising, but we're still very early on in this. Uh, but I think the data are really interesting. So let me just say that we know now from very large uh, sample studies, studies involving thousands of individuals on whom we have structural MRI scans, there are certain objective metrics, objective indices in the structural MRIs that can be measured automatically that together comprise an index of brain aging. And if you look at a large sample of people, brain aging is highly correlated with chronological age. But some people are individuals for whom their brains are aging more quickly than their chronological age. And for other people, their brains are aging more slowly compared to their chronological age. And the data that we have so far has suggested that meditation may 
help to slow brain aging. But the data are not very good. They involve a hodgepodge of different meditation practices. But as we talk about in the book, we've done a case study of a very, very long-term practitioner in our lab who has consented to be identified. And his name is Mingyur Rinpoche, and he's a Tibetan Lama who has done many years of intensive retreat practice. And his brain age is in the 99th percentile of a large group of individuals against which we compared it uh, using these objective parameters. When you say 99th percentile, you mean he, he's, if, if you had 100 people in the room of his age, his would be Correct. the youngest brain yes. in the room. But that doesn't yeah. mean it reverses it. Right. It slows it. I think it's important to make that point. Yes. And we have serial MRI scans over a 14-year period with him. And his brain is definitely changing and aging just like your brain or my brain is. But the, what it's showing is that his brain is aging more slowly. So what we just said is that there's a, in the Venn diagram of you know, what meditation is good for and purposed for and all the other things about the mind and human life that concern us, there is imperfect overlap between those two circles. But we should say that there is significant overlap. So what meditation is good for and what meditation was designed for, and, and we've used words like awakening and deconstructing the self, and there, there are other terms like enlightenment and insight. These are, at least as conceived and advertised, antidotes to human suffering at its most basic, or at least as it was conceived to be its most basic in a tradition like Buddhism. And it's also, I'll add one more piece here, it's also an antidote to, or at least connected to, the problem of, of living an unethical life as well. When you look at for, for the reasons why people suffer, and you look for the reasons why people make others suffer unnecessarily, that is, act unethically in the world, those two problems have been very much a central concern for contemplatives for thousands of years. And meditation is put forward as a solution, actually the, the foundational solution to both of those problems. Though ethics, you know, living an ethical life and having an ethical code is also put forward as a kind of supporting practice for the project of, of meditation. But again, the, the, the overlap is, is imperfect. So it's, it's, it might not be true to say that if you imagine someone taking the meditation project to its ultimate degree, you, know, you, you get the best meditator who has ever lived, and let's call that person a Buddha, whatever that terminus is like, uh, we can be agnostic about it. But there's some, some end state that is advertised that is the completion of this project. That still might not fully line up with every Western expectation of what it is to be perfectly healthy psychologically. Uh, I think that you know it may it may exceed our expectations in, in many ways, and it might not line up with what it means to be a perfect person ethically necessarily. And I, again, I, I would just put this out there. I don't my ideas about the, the misalignment here are not well worked out, but I just I just want to put that to you both as a as a possibility. There's one element that uh, I mean I think it's really wonderful that you raise the ethical 
dimension here, which I think is very, very important. And one of the concerns that uh, many people have had with uh, the, quote, American mindfulness movement, if you will, is that uh, in many cases, the practices have been stripped of their ethical context. And one way we can summarize what that ethical context is very succinctly is that when we put our butt on the cushion to meditate, in many of these traditions, we invoke the intention that I'm going to sit and meditate, not primarily for my own benefit, but for the benefit of others. That is, calming my mind and opening my heart is something that's not just good for myself, but even more importantly, it's good for others. It's good for all of those with whom I interact. And that invocation of this ethical framework in which the practice is embedded, first of all, I think can be done in a purely secular way, in the way I just described. And secondly, we do not know from a scientific research perspective what the impact of simply invoking that ethical context might be. How does that change the biology? If we just invoke that ethical context without doing the practice itself, might there be some beneficial change? These are all questions which I think need to be pursued in the future. And I, I think it's important, too, to say that ethics are seen in, in the Eastern meditation traditions as both arising from and prerequisite for the practice. In Buddhism, for example, and, and many other spiritual traditions, people embrace an ethical code and then meditate within that context. And then it becomes easier and easier to follow uh, that code as they progress. Yeah, I, there is that dual mode of it being used as a support for practice, whereas the breakthroughs one would have in meditation practice are really the important point, and ethics is, is, is being presented merely as a, as a support for it. But in terms of the, the value for our lives and our relationships, it's hard to get away from the significance of what Richie just raised here, which is this really is in large measure about being a better person in the world. And when you see the way in which your own suffering and distraction and crankiness gets exported to the people around you, I mean, just, you know, we all have families. We know what it's like to be husbands and fathers. And the, the difference between being a happy husband and a happy father and being one who's continually bound up with self-concern and dissatisfaction is enormous. I mean, you could just see it, the wake of your own unhappiness affect everyone around you, and in this case, the, the people you're most concerned be happy in your company. You know, the, the metric that I use in my own practice, I've been a practitioner for a long, long time, is that my wife says, I'm a nicer person now. I think that says something. That's a high bar. It is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Let's talk about the the furthest reaches of attainment here that we can dimly understand on the basis of our own practice. But Richie, you have had access to real contemplative athletes in your lab. You know, you you finally you had a first failed attempt at access that is described in the book, which is pretty funny, where you, where you're schlepping hundreds of pounds of equipment up to caves in outside of Dharamsala in India. To, to get access to these yogis who the Dalai Lama wanted you to do EEG work on, and they all denied you access. 
which is amusing, and I'll, I'll let people read about that in the book. But I, I want you to talk about what it's like to get people who have tens of thousands of hours of meditation training in the lab and how you think about the progress from the beginning of practice through the, the intermediate stages into something like a full trait acquisition of the, the import of these disciplines. The, the privilege of having these individuals in our lab has really been uh, palpable. And uh, we see this in the data, and we also see it in our personal encounters and sort of the anecdotal uh, evidence that transpires as we work with them. So uh, I'll share just a tidbit from each of those domains. With regard to the data, the very first paper we published on these very long-term practitioners was published in 2004. And I think that this paper, uh, I mean, we know that it, it's been cited a lot and it's had a lot of impact, I think, in just establishing that there is a there there. And by, what we mean by that is that here we're very long-term practitioners. And if their brains weren't different, uh, then the likelihood of seeing a signal in less practiced individuals would be um, more difficult. Uh, and so this was an important place to start. And what we saw are these very high amplitude gamma oscillations uh, that were dramatically increased during a formal meditation practice. But what really I think is even more important, and we only noticed this sort of later on in the process, was that during their baseline, uh, when they were not formally meditating, they showed a highly significantly elevated level of gamma oscillations compared to age and gender match controls. And so this prevalence of gamma oscillation seems to be a neural correlate of uh, some quality of mind which is being cultivated by these practices. And one clue to what that quality is, is that in addition to the high amplitude, what we see is that the oscillations are highly synchronous across different regions of the brain. And uh, this is, I think, a neural echo of a kind of open and spacious quality of awareness. These practitioners use the word, words like panoramic awareness uh, and clarity of awareness to describe their experience. And they report themselves to be in this kind of mode all the time. And in subsequent research, we found that long-term practitioners exhibit these gamma oscillations even when they're sleeping. And so this is something that seems to be maintained 24 hours a day. And so this was the first really unusual clue that something was different about their brains. With respect to this, these sleep data, are these yogis who are, who are actually claiming to maintain awareness through the stages of sleep? So first of all, the sleep data, um, we did not, uh, this is just important uh, uh, sort of scientific details. We did not put the very long-term practitioners in the sleep lab. Uh, the data we have on sleep come from uh, slightly less practiced individuals, individuals who have an average lifetime experience of around 10,000 hours, not uh, 40,000 hours. And so they're a different sample. And uh, these are individuals who, for the most part, have reported experiences of 
preservation of awareness during sleep, but not universally. So um, one of the things that we haven't done, though, which we're currently doing in research that's actively going on, is actually waking people up uh, when we see these gamma oscillations and asking them, what is going on in your mind? So that's part of ongoing research. Richie, I think I I should have you just briefly describe what gamma oscillations are and then tell us how far from normal these these long-term practitioners were in your study. Yeah, gamma oscillations are a normal feature of the brain, but when we test ordinary people who've not trained their mind, you typically see these oscillations for very short periods of time, typically less than one second, a quarter of a second or a half a second. And they often occur with a flash of insight into a problem that you've been working on. Uh, They can also occur when there is what we call in the trade perceptual binding, where different elements of a percept come together. For example, if you uh, visualize a red apple and biting into a red apple, you have the visual image, you have the auditory image of the crunch, you have the gustatory sensations, you have the smell. And when those all come together, you see a synchronized burst of gamma that typically lasts less than a second. And so there are these gamma oscillations that are frequently seen, but they're seen for very, very short periods of time. In these yogis, we see these gamma oscillations at baseline. They go on for minutes and hours, and they're just a feature of the baseline brain electrical signature. Right. So I have a question for you, Sam. In your book, Waking Up, you uh, talk about going to see a non-dual teacher, a Vipassana teacher, and then a Dzogchen teacher. And the yogis that Richie's describing are Dzogchen yogis. Do you have something to add to this? I guess I'm agnostic as to whether or not there are important differences among mature meditators in, in these various traditions. I certainly think it's possible to log many thousands of hours and not be noticing the same things about your conscious awareness depending on on which path you're traveling there. So you know wh- whether they these various paths of practice dualistic and non-dualistic say to take two fully converge in any kind of time frame that that we can care about I just don't know. It it would make sense that they would at some point because you know we are just talking about the way consciousness is however it is so it's the same thing is there to be realized, and, and we're talking about people who are spending the better part of their lives looking. But it seems to me that there are artifacts of different kinds of training which are more or less helpful. And so if, you're, if your training is to, to fixate you know, very closely on objects, you know, perceptual objects like the breath, say, and you're not given any kind of non-dual framework with which to release that fixation, I feel like it's it's possible to spend, I mean, I certainly did it. I spent at least, a, at that point, I spent a year on retreat not recognizing that the non-duality of consciousness was there to be recognized in any moment, even without any significant concentration. I mean, even so even off retreat, the, the same thing was there to be witnessed. I even knew that conceptually, but my practice was telling me otherwise given the, the logic of it. And I should just add, and this is something that I spell out in my book, Waking Up at, at some length, 
there, there can be a fair amount of psychological suffering in a person who is seeking deeper levels of practice in this sort of problematized, dualistic way of you know really wanting to get there and endlessly going back to retreat in order to do it. You get stuck in craving not to crave. And I was definitely that, that kind of seeker. I mean, I, I feel like I could have been spared a fair amount of pain early on by being given the more of the Dzogchen view than, than I got early. But that's my hobby horse. I think many of us were stuck yeah. in the same place, yeah. Sam. <laughs> Universal predicament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah who, who do we sue? Yes. So I think probably the Burmese. Well, listen, guys, this has been fantastic, and, and I can only recommend that people who want to know more go to your book because, again, this is really the full picture of the state of what Western science is now doing with meditation and what can be claimed and what, what shouldn't be claimed on its basis. So thank you for writing the book, and, and it's, it's really been a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Before we sign off here, tell people where they should reach out uh, online. If you want to know more about what I'm up to, the website is danielgoleman.info. And uh, you can learn more about our work at uh, centerhealthyminds.org. Uh, which is our center website or richardjdavidson.com. Thank you, Sam, for having us. Thank you so much, Sam. It was great to connect. Mm -hmm.